Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. BT Sport Pods. Hi, welcome to Michael Calvin's Football People. I'm joined by Miguel Delaney of the Independent and by Dominic Fifield of the Athletic. I'll be discussing a less complicated time in football with Martin O'Neill, this week's guest. But first, we must address the unprecedented charges laid by the Premier League against Manchester City. The club insists they're innocent and welcome the chance for clarity. Yet the issues thrown up by the case are era-defining. It may take years to conclude, but Miggs, will this be the most important decision ever taken by the Premier League? Oh, without a doubt, since its foundation, and I think it could be the most influential moment in terms of what the Premier League and English football looks like since the foundation of the Premier League as well. Obviously, it's his biggest disciplinary decision, and it's hugely important for all sorts of reasons. I mean, when it broke on Monday, just from immediately talking to people within the game, there was genuine shock about it from people pretty close to the situation. As much as anything, because there was this widespread expectation, especially given how long it had gone on, given the criticism from a high court judge about it, it would just kind of almost fizzle out into a fine from a city for non-cooperation. And I think that's what people are missing the point when they, when they talk about it, you know, when, it, when there's an expectation that this could just go nowhere. They went much further than that, as can be indicated by the long, long list of alleged breaches. And that also does something else now in that, because this is there's almost this sort of extreme historic pressure from both sides. On the one side, there's always that issue of what happens, say, if you get to the point where a serial champion is punished, what that looks like for the legitimacy of a competition, as we've seen in Italy so often over the last 30 years. But on the other side, given the Premier League have brought so many charges, they put the competition itself under pressure to actually make it stick, because if they don't, then the legitimacy is is eroded from the other end. And it's both, I mean, it's both shocking, (laughs) it's huge, and it's extremely important for the future of football. Yeah, what are the, the implications for the game as a whole, do you feel, Dom? You know, we have stories emerging about Qatari interest in Manchester United now. 
State-sponsored football is a fact of modern football life. If City are found guilty, and as I want to stress that they claim their innocence and are going to spend an awful lot of money to try and secure a not guilty verdict, where are we going with all this? <laughs> well, I mean, it does, yeah, it does cast doubt over whether state-sponsored ownership is is the way forward whether whether clubs will be able to whether whether clubs will actually be able to muscle themselves onto the scene and disrupt the old order the establishment uh, in the future and I've, I've seen the argument put out there that you know why should we have financial fair play regulations i mean does it does it not stunt competition and prevent ambition etc and why why shouldn't clubs be owners be allowed to to spend what they want if they've if they've got that money and you know that is that is one argument out there but the, maybe it, the implications of this will be that it's the premier league showing that it can self-govern and, and that you know the timing of it in a week when the white paper on regulation was going to be you know was going to be put forward in, in in midweek i know it's been put back until the end of the month now but you know, this was the Premier League showing. Oh, we can self-regulate here. We, you know, we've got our most successful club of the last decade, and we're 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 following through with the investigation and 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 accusing them of all manner of of, of financial impropriety. If, if that's a show of power, then fair enough. But then I, I guess there's, there's a counter argument even to that, in that it's taken this long for them to come up with with this and and i think the cynics will look at the the timing of it all and wonder whether that's that's just there to to try and stave off the uh the government getting involved in regulation look, the, the implications are massive absolutely huge look even retrospectively on the more romantic side of it all our city's title is going to be discredited forever is the Aguero moment no more? I mean, do, do we look back at that and think actually that isn't the most incredible denouement to a Premier League season ever, and actually it's been ruined in some way? I mean, you know, these these are debates that that are going to rumble on quite ferociously actually until there is some kind of resolution on this, whatever that may be, because this process in itself is probably going to take a year plus to to come to some kind of resolution. Mm. Are we coming to the point, Migs, where you know, we almost question whether this is all worth it in terms of anyone, you know, I come from a generation as do you guys in terms of, you know, you fall in love with a game as a kid and you love its simplicity and you love its urgency and its intensity and everything else. Uh, but then it's become a vehicle for things which are completely outside that orbit. So, for instance, Migs, in, in basic terms, are we looking now towards the... Is this almost like the next evolutionary step in football where essentially we're going to end up with some form of global Super League which is funded by the sort of money that has funded Manchester City? Well, I I do wonder whether a a lot of the undercurrents in football will lead to some sort of institutional response to all this. And as you say, I mean, it's... It's amazing to go from that kind of simple love of the game that we all have, and that why, like even fans of clubs owned by states, it's almost a complication when they're put in this position because, and that's what these states are seeking to use, and it's because basically football has such a global popularity. I mean, I was reading David Goldblatt's recent book, and I actually would agree with this that football is arguably now in twenty twenty three a greater cultural force that crosses more international borders than the world has ever seen. I mean, Ronaldo and Messi say are probably more famous than Elvis ever was. 
And and but it's it's it, it's that huge socio political capital that these states are trying to buy, basically. That's a, and just on one point, I mean, this argument that's going around about you know financial fair play. Has anyone actually stopped to think what football would look like if there was no financial fair play and these states could just pump in as much as they wanted? That just wouldn't be sport. They would dominate. No one could compete with them on any level. It would be a farce. From that perspective, it's <laughs> the rules are essential. And the other side, the one thing I would say, oh, the talk about, well, will, will the Aguero moment be tainted? Well, I mean, before you even get to any of this, it's already tainted. It's in service of a state. Given how Abu Dhabi are looking to use Manchester City to have an appalling human rights record, a usually criticised human rights record by by Amnesty, and have sought to politically use the football club. And this entire controversy is just a consequence of this greater issue. To extend that point, Migs, and I'd like you to follow up on this, please. What about the potential for political embarrassment for the UAE in particular? Well, I mean, there's an interesting one there, I suppose, given um, the, the, the government itself as well. It was in early January when it signed a 10, million, a 10 billion trade deal with the UAE. And again, there is an argument that, that fosters or that strengthens the debate about an independent regulator because it, this is the kind of the, the level we're getting to in a discussion like this because football has allowed such interests into the game and it, and again it, it runs totally contrary to what a football club should be which should be about its place in the community not used as some with some where, where the primary motive is about uh, the glory or political ambition or influence of, of, of a state it, football really shouldn't it, it, and it doesn't need to get to these sort of levels but it's it's allowed itself to get into that position and yeah and, and i think that that's one the purely political side is why again people fear this story could go on so much longer and there could be all the greater complications to it. Yeah. You know, you mentioned the the devil's advocate argument, Dom, that, you know, why shouldn't clubs be allowed to to spend whatever they wish? Do you think this whole case will increase the scrutiny on Chelsea and and their attempts to work within FFP, you know, with the the long-term contracts and everything else that the new ownership are building out? Well, I think that the sheer amount of money that they've spent has brought scrutiny already, to be honest. UEFA are already closing the loophole uh, in terms of the, the sort of the bookmaking trick that, that Chelsea are in, that I've employed to get round FFP and that that will be closed in the summer and they will only be able to spread the, the cost of these transfer fees over five years on the books rather than... Well, I think it's seven and a half or eight and a half years that some of these guys have have, have signed contracts for. Oh, look, you can have your your own views on. on I don't. Th- I don't. I suspect that Chelsea will not be spending this type of money in many transfer windows ahead. I think they've they've tried to front load it all and, and get it done now while they could. And you know, I, I personally, I, I found it a bit distasteful the amount of money that they got spent. But you know. That was their choice. They, when they bought Chelsea Football Club, they committed to spend what was it one point seven five billion pounds, uh, including the stadium, in, in investment in the team on top of the two point five billion that they spent buying Chelsea Football Club itself. So that's this is just them doing that. It will bring scrutiny because the numbers are mind boggling. 
but I, I'm not sure that we should necessarily think that there will be increased scrutiny on the back of the charges from the Premier League that relate to a time when, while everything that was happening at Manchester City, it was Roman Abramovich who was in charge at, at Chelsea. And I mean, look, we that, that club went through its own turmoil about a year ago, Chelsea, I mean, with, with the Abramovich ownership and the way that that unravelled. It's. I, I, I suspect that the, these are very different issues now. Mm. What are the competitive implications of all this? Do you think, Migs, in terms of you know specifically looking at Manchester City now and in the short term future? There's obviously going to be a siege mentality at the Etihad on Sunday for the game against Villa. You know, there's a lot of conjecture about Pep Guardiola's future if these charges are actually proved to be cogent and well-argued and, and actually correct. Where do you feel that uh, uh, Guardiola fits into this uh, million-piece jigsaw? Well, I think it's very interesting. I, just actually, I, I do agree there's going to be a siege mentality. <laughs> On that, I must say I found some of the, shall we say, points of view coming out of City interesting. One, one, one line about how they were there was irritation that journalists were briefed beforehand. Well, if that was the case, it, it's interesting because no one broke the story. It uh, it actually just it suddenly just appeared in the Premier League website. Secondly, if they were briefed, so what? <laughs> what what relevance does that have to the case? Every um, football club briefs. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> but it's, but but it does feel as if that's been you know these sort of lines coming out have been in part to stoke this siege mentality. It's a bit of narrative control, but I do wonder this time is the siege mentality going to be underscored with a bit more doubt in the sense that. I mean, Guardiola, I mean, all week people have been talking about some of the recent lines he's had about how, you know, if if it's, if it's he ever finds that they've lied to him, he'd leave it all this. But even before you get to that, Guardiola, as we know, famously kind of neurotic man about football, thinks about football every 31 minutes, all that sort of stuff. But he isn't very intense. Like, the intensity of the game evidently wears, it, wears on him. And it, from from what you hear, he is someone as well. Almost every year, he has he convinces himself to go again because he wants the Champions League. And now, with all that and that weight he puts on himself, there's now the extra weight of this. And especially given that throughout all of this, he's bar um, Calzun Al Mubarak, the chairman's interviews at the end of every season or or or, or occasional media busy does. It's Guardiola that has to be the public face of the club and all this and face the questions and inherent to those questions I suppose or certainly he might feel that inherent to those questions are the, the legitimacy of his achievements are being scrutinised and you wouldn't be surprised if it just influenced him to say to, at the end of the season maybe to go well I, I think it's time I, I, I moved on then the other side of that and while I do agree to be a siege mentality within the players the players are basically in the city base Sky Sports News is on all the time and this has been made, this is obviously, this is the only story in town right now. It's going to cause some, at the very least, discussion among the players about what next, their own futures. And I think it was um, Matt Lawton and um, and Ziegler had, had the story in uh, in the Times Wednesday morning that for transfer targets are already reconsidering whether to go to City in the summer. Yeah, and then we've, you know, we're at a crucial stage of the season, aren't we? Dom, and, and let's indulge ourselves and talk about football for a second, <laughs> shall we? You know, they've got Arsenal at uh, the Emirates on uh, Wednesday. If they lose there, will that effectively end their title ambitions? 
Oh, I'm going to get really boring here, Mike. I don't. I don't think. I don't think it's. I don't think a title will be decided in at this stage yet. I mean, I think psychologically, Arsenal can can inflict serious damage on City if they beat them next week. But I, I'm not. I'm not sure the title will be done. I'm still one of these. I'm still one of these people that's waiting for City to take off, and I don't, maybe it won't happen this season. Maybe this. Maybe the cumulative you know the actual the sheer number of games they've played in the last few ga- years will uh, will catch up on them in the same way that it appears to be catching up on Liverpool and, and Chelsea and even West Ham this this year and maybe this this time they won't be able to go on one of those ridiculous 10 to 15 game winning streaks and 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 haul in all the silverware in the process but but I, I think they've got the quality there to do that it's just whether they've got the the physical and and mental freshness to, to do it, particularly on the back of this, because yes, yeah, siege mentality is one thing, but I don't know how long siege mentality, yeah, maintains. You know, it, it wears, doesn't it? I mean, it'll, it'll grind them down. It, I it, it, that even happened with Chelsea last season as well. Yeah, absolutely. It only lasted so long. Yeah, and then it fizzled out, and and it ended up in a pretty miserable place in the end. I mean, it was a you know, it's it's it just takes its toll. So I, I don't think the title will be decided next week, but I, I mean, look, it would be massive for Arsenal to to inflict a defeat on City because uh, not least after events at, at Goodison Park at the weekend. Mm. That defeat, Migs, at Goodison was that a blip? Do you think, or a sign of the struggle to come? I, I think it's a slight concern for Arsenal. I mean, as as any defeat is, given well, given the usual context of a title race that involves City. Of course, the parameters that may now have changed, given everything going on. Uh, and I suppose what it does is it just it saps the momentum they've had because it, 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 there was a point over the past few months where felt like you, you were always waiting for Arsenal to just level off a little bit and they kept winning so that that could potentially erode confidence and but I think also it, it's just almost it's there's a little bit of not quite uncharted territory but it's their first defeat in the league since September against Manchester United so it's almost now, now the general wonder will be you know how they respond. Also, it's the first time they've lost two games in a row this season. Every previous defeat, because I think this is their fifth in all competitions, because they lost the, the cup game to City. Although that was probably a quote-unquote good defeat, given it further freedom for the title race. Although, the, just on that, before Arsenal weren't their best. I don't think they were particularly bad. I think that result was more a product of the way that game flipped. It became one of the Premier League fixtures that would have been considered the easiest given how bad Everton have been even at home this season to then one where it was suddenly this hugely difficult situation because Deich was coming in. There was a siege mentality around Everton as well. And for that sort of game, Deich is probably the wrong sort of manager you want to face. <laughs> and if, and in, so, in, some, in some ways, playing the leaders and maybe even played into Deich as well because he could, he could so kind of rally them around this backs-to-the-wall approach. But it's it's Brentford on Saturday, of course, on a run of their own, and so it's only that that bit more of a test with Arsenal. But from from this perspective as well, maybe we'll get a kind of a, a good old fashioned title race this year in the sense that it's not going to be about over ninety points. It's actually going to be about like something closer to the nineties, where there's an element of vulnerability to title race, which is actually which makes for better races, I would say, because there's more tension and more twists. Yeah, sure. You you mentioned um, Sean Dyche there, Migs, um, Dom. You know, obviously he's turning up at Anfield on uh, hmm. on Monday for the Merseyside derby. By common consent, Liverpool are at their lowest ebb. Uh, should they be careful what they wish for in overtly criticising Jurgen Klopp? Well, 
I suppose, are we talking about supporters doing that? Because I think that, I suspect that Jurgen Klopp will retain the the faith of, uh, of the vast majority of Liverpool's fans. It's it's more uh, the criticism the supporters have had, as far as I can see, has, has been more on the ownership in recent seasons. And, and actually, they wanted them to go out and do more of what Manchester City and Chelsea have been doing and spending money left, right and centre. Jurgen Klopp does not, like, a bit like his team actually, looks a bit worn down by everything at the moment. I think when he gets into that mood where he starts calling out journalists in press conferences, I don't, I don't think that's a, I don't personally don't think that's a great look, but I would say that I'm a journalist. It, it does, and by the, and by the way, he did tell me in on this podcast that he never he never reads what it, what is written about yeah, him anyway. Well, they all say that, don't they? Um, I mean, it's I, I, that that looked like a a man a bit at the end of his tether in terms of trying to to turn this season around and that was a horrible defeat at Wolverhampton Wanderers I mean properly horrible defeat a dreadful start an improvement after the break they don't score the goals that they that you know their their chances merited and their, and their approach primarily perhaps and then get picked off on the counter as well and everything everything that he came out with even the stuff about the third goal not really counting because it was the first time Wolves had got into their half I mean it's just nonsense it's just nonsense and it's just a man sort of floundering a bit at the moment because because his team's been denied key players up and down the spine I mean Virgil van Dijk's absence is just being hugely felt the forward line just looks a bit of a mishmash at the moment in, in Nunes hasn't really settled is missing far more chances than he's that he's taking. Cody Gakpo's been flung in at the deep end and, and, and looks a bit lost at the moment. Mo Salah's playing further and further and further right that he you know he's gonna be on the, the wrong side of the touchline before too long. I mean it's it's the whole the whole you know, all the things that Liverpool were good at, even the functioning midfield where, where Thiago was I mean look at Thiago's body language for the for the third goal at the at the weekend where he just doesn't even bother tracking back and then just sits stands and watches. I mean I I coach under 14s football and I'll give my players grief for doing that and 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 yet you know Thiago's doing this Thiago Alcantara rather is doing it for for Liverpool so I mean it's it's just a, a bit of a mess at the moment and yeah they need to find a winning formula and actually you know they they would have thought that, that a home game with Everton a couple of weeks back they would have thought wow oh, that's a really good opportunity to get galvanize everybody again get the focus nice rip roaring win in the derby that will get us going but actually now it's a it's far more of a daunting fixture because Sean Dyche is there mm. Champions League mix comes back into our lives from next Tuesday starts with Spurs at the San Siro against AC Milan one assumes that they will uh, have had a timely injection of confidence after that win over City. Do you think they're primed to exploit the defensive weaknesses that Milan have been showing in Syria? Yeah, I mean, it does feel like it, it, it's not even. I mean, obviously, the last few years we're talking about this. They're, they're Syria champions, but this isn't the great Milan. It's it's a it's a Milan rebuilding. They're not what they were last season, but even right now, they're not what they were in October when they played Chelsea and were beaten. Pretty convincingly, I would say at the moment there's actually a significant gap between the teams, and because it's Milan, it always it almost going to mitigate you against this argument that it's it's a, it's a it's a one-sided tie. But I, I at the moment I would liken this to kind of almost 
one of those kind of Champions League knockout games. Okay, not quite when, when City get a game against kind of uh, Borussia Mönchengladbach and hammer them or something like that. But did this? I'd be very surprised if Spurs don't get through this pretty easily. I have to say, I think there's there's just an immense gap between the teams, and of course this feeds into one of the other issues to frame as the return of the Champions League, which is the rest of Europe is extremely aggravated and worried about the strength of the Premier League. Well, we've got Borussia Dortmund. They have Chelsea at home on Wednesday, Dom. Presumably this is going to be yet another high-profile audition for Jude Bellingham. What about, from a Chelsea perspective, the noise will increase to incredible levels if Chelsea go out of the Champions League, won't it? Well, yeah, it will, because that that will be their season pretty much done, other than maybe a scramble for a Europa League qualification place that they might not even want. There's a lot riding on it. We wait to see progress still from from Graham Potter's Chelsea, and and I, I'm not I'm not belittling the, the the task that he's got because it's not going to be easy when you've got seven new players brought in, all of a certain age, all of a certain ex- level of experience, really coming in in January and trying to 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 get a tune from a squad of 33 senior pros in the Premier League and 25 with those three additions in the in the Champions League with disaffected members like like Obama Yang still on the scene as we speak uh, it's 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 a really really tricky assignment that he's he's got um it's also one that a lot of other managers in the in the division would love to to be taking on it should be said but yeah their results haven't been good enough and and they've only really performed in fits and starts in games as well so it's not as if they can say all the the performances are radically better than the results they're achieving it's it's been too slack for too long you know I think they've only beaten Palace at home this calendar year there was the Bournemouth game just before Christmas uh, just after Christmas so the two struggling teams that they've beaten and the rest of them, it just hasn't happened. It hasn't clicked. The same old problems are ringing themselves. The squads, for all this work, still looks like a squad in transition. There's no number nine that's going to come in and solve all their goal-scoring problems amongst this, this squad of players. The same issues will, will keep rearing. So good luck, Graham Potter, quite frankly. Yeah, well, it's too easy to forget that Nottingham Forest won the European Cup in successive seasons. Martin O'Neill was part of that team and he learned much from Brian Clough. He managed eight clubs and the Republic of Ireland. After more than 50 years in football, the buzz is still there. Welcome, Martin. We're probably about three and a half years in from your departure from Forest. Mm-hmm. You still missing management? I think I'll always miss it, Michael. Yeah, you know, I, I've had a career in the game spanning fifty years, so it's not likely to disappear just overnight. You know, so absolutely, yeah. Because when you look at the fundamental attractions of the job, I'm always struck by how coaches can really only be candid with other coaches Mm -hmm. because they know what you've been going through. Do you have to have been in it to understand it? I think that's absolutely right. Yeah, I think that you do have to be in it. I mean, it's from a distance. For instance, you know, let's say you and I were going to watch a film 
it's either just an enjoyment or we didn't like it or whatever the case may be. Are we going into the ins and outs of it? Are we going to what the cinematographer thought about it? You know, are we thinking about what did the director do? So I think, again, when you're in it, you do have that understanding. You probably understand exactly what another manager is going through. But I'm, I was never really one to be sharing my views, my disappointments or whatever with other managers because generally speaking, they're probably in the same position. They don't want to hear what, <laughs> what you're saying. They have enough problems of their own and if I had been asking for advice, I probably would have known what the advice was going to be anyway before I'd even asked the question. So from that viewpoint, I kind of, um, I didn't really uh, relay all, the, all my trials and tribulations to people but overall, I absolutely agree with you. I think you have to be in it to completely understand it. Mm. From a personal point of view, do you think it, that job defines you as an individual, as a human being? I think it probably does. I think that, for instance, right, I had a playing career where it was very much thinking about yourself, the things that you wanted to know, were you going to be in the team? And if you were, was the team going to be reasonably successful? And if you weren't in the side, did you blame the manager every single week? You know, did you look into yourself? But I think that as a manager, you are in charge of a group of players for a start. You have to manage them. Then something that's become more and more important as the years have gone on, you have to manage upwards. And yes, I think there is something that really defines you as a person or as a personality or how you're able to deal with situations that you probably well, you didn't have to face when you were a, a player. And that when I'm talking about a player, I'm talking about somebody that has had a career from, let's say, from 19, 20 years of age until early 30s. So if you're talking, have you, have you not been a man until you're 35? Yeah, probably true. Yeah, because to be honest, the, the reason I asked that question, it relates a little bit to me personally in terms of your Forest team, the, the European mm -hmm. Cup winning team, played quite a big role in my career in terms of as a kid, it was the first club away trip I'd ever been on when you played in East Berlin in, oh, did you? in the second right. season. Uh -huh. yeah. Now, watching you from afar there and, and you know, being around the Northern Ireland camp briefly, you know, you get a sense of who will become a manager. Mm -hmm. I never had that from you. I thought you had a, your personality was, was more multidimensional, you know, all the stuff mm -hmm. about criminology and mm -hmm. everything else that you're yeah. into. So it surprised me, I thought, because you know, it can be a one-dimensional world, can it? Uh, yeah, again, absolutely. And I never really thought about it either, even in my latter stages of, of playing the game, never really considered it at all. Then suddenly I realised that when you're out of it, I got an injury when I was about 31 or 32, that finished me in the game. And then suddenly I think of all the advice I used to give to the other players about what they were going to do in their afterlife, and I mean after football life, I never took any of this advice myself. <laughs> and so I found out that having a couple of A-levels away back about 10 or 11 years ago actually wasn't going to do me a great deal of good. And suddenly the only thing that I had really known in the last 10, 11, 12, 13 years was actually professional football. And it was a chance meeting with Peter Taylor that I had in a shop in Nottingham. In fact, I saw him coming towards my direction. He had retired from the game. Do you remember Peter Taylor being yeah, yeah. Brian Clough? And Peter had retired. <clears throat> he had fallen out with Brian Clough at the time. The two of them hadn't made it up. Peter had retired. This would be about 1986-87 time. So I saw him coming. I tried to dive out of the way, not to see him really. And he came up to me and he said, uh, hey, you, you disappoint me. He said, I thought you would go into management. 
and so in a in a sort of um, in a sort of a way, it was like a, a backhanded compliment to me that he actually thought I was managerial material. Well, I used to have plenty of enough arguments with him when I was a player. So here he was coming up and saying that, and he said, "You had the two best teachers in the world." He said, "You had myself and Brian, and well, certainly a Brian, you know, no doubt at all about it." And he made me think about it, and I really almost getting back home from that meeting, I decided, yeah, okay. And I started to apply for jobs rather unsuccessfully, I must admit, but I started to apply for jobs because I thought, probably because Peter Taylor thought I had managerial material, mm. believe it or not. You, you know, you mentioned Brian Clough there. Again, you know, from a, indulge me here, you know, on that trip to East Berlin, I felt I had to introduce myself to him. Mm-hmm. And we were in the old East Berlin airport, Schoenfeld, at the baggage reclaim, and I thought, well, I'll go over and you know, say I'm a little wet behind me as a kid. Mm. And I won't do the impression, but I said, you yeah, know, Mr. Clough, you know, I'm blah, blah, blah. And he looked me up and down and said, uh, hey, Biggin, uh, I've got some advice for you. You're in a profession full of <laughs> houses. Don't be a <laughs> house. And I went, yes, Mr. Clough, certainly Mr. Clough. Anything else, Mr. Clough? Uh-huh. And that had a huge effect on me. Mm-hmm. Um, did he have that type of effect on everyone? Of course, yes. And it didn't really matter what he said to you. He would have had that effect if he had just said, good morning, Michael, I know your name. That would have had the same sort yeah. of effect. It doesn't, you know, I'm not so sure that um, that he would have worried too much about the number of houses that yeah. you had in, <laughs> in, the, in the business. But uh, yeah, just anything he would have said to you at that time would have had an effect on you, absolutely. Mm. When he first arrived at Nottingham Forest, and I would never forget that morning. January 1975, comes in, it's really cold. We're all gathered in the dressing room, the players. He comes in, takes the jacket off him, puts it in a peg to his left-hand side, starts to talk to Sammy Chapman. Sammy Chapman and Barry Butlin would probably be the only two players he would have known at the time. Barry because he worked with at Derby and Sammy Chapman because he was Captain Forrest. And um, so he's starting to talk to us for a moment or two. New manager, need to win a couple of games, lads, blah, blah, blah. And then we were heading to Tottenham Hotspur on the Wednesday to play in a, an FA Cup replay game. And it's just as he's leaving, he turns around and he said, is young O'Neill in the room? And I put my hand up like a schoolboy. He said, oh, by the way, you'll be coming with us on Wednesday. But he could have said anything to me and it would just have had that same effect as he did have you on that carousel. Mm, you know, he was a master at keeping people on edge. Right? There's that famous story about you know, Trevor Francis, who was this million-pound footballer, mm-hmm. which in a time when million pounds actually bought you something, uh-huh. you know, telling him to go and get his slippers and stuff like that. Did you use that type of sort of approach when you became manager? What rubbed off? Uh, uh, lots of things rubbed off, I have to say. that yeah. But there are some things that I fundamentally disagreed with him in terms of management. I thought, well, I won't do that. But... I do think, Mike, first of all, you talked about his charisma for a start. Secondly, I think you start to tend to follow people if they're successful. And he was mightily successful. And if he's giving you a message, he's backing it up with winning the football games. So he's going to lose a lot of dissenters in the dressing room. He's going to have people following him. And then he's got this charisma to boot. So he's got all of those things going for him. Now, yeah, he's. You, you mentioned about Trevor. I think the question was that uh, Trevor, first million pound player, and I think one of the journalists said, uh, "When are you going to make your debut, Trevor?" 
and Clough interrupted and said, when I pick him, you know. <laughs> so those are the type of things. And in actual fact, the first game we had, Trevor wasn't eligible to play. I don't think he might have signed it too late. But he was actually in the dressing room with us, serving out the tea. So Cluffy made sure that even the million-pound player arriving was going to be eating out of his hand, literally and metaphorically, I think. So, yeah, he had that effect on just about everyone. And I think that there are countless, endless stories about him, one for every single day of the week. But he instilled that sort of, not just respect, in my case, a little bit of fear. Some of the other players, they claim that they weren't that frightened of him. I don't believe them. Well, let me, I'll give you an example, Michael. When there's a long corridor at Nottingham Forest, which you probably know, mm. and it comes from his room, and then right down the corridor. And in those days, the dressing room was, as he's walking down, would be to the left-hand side. And there was a drying room. We call it the drying room because we used to dry our training gear in there. And as you could see, it was a distance of maybe about uh, 25 yards. But you could see when he opened up the door from where he was coming, what sort of face he had on. And I saw Larry Lloyd and Kenny Burns have a look at that face, see it from a distance and jump into that drying room to get out of his way. <laughs> so that might take, those are two hard men. Yeah, they were, weren't they? That team, you know, the European Cup winning team, time sort of smooths things out, doesn't it really? You know, it's 40 years. You know, we're both getting old, mate. Yeah, absolutely. Um, mm. Is that team appreciated for what it was, winning the European Cup in successive seasons? Probably not. I don't think it is. There are a number of reasons for that there. I think because the manager, what shall I say, transcended everything. He was he was the, the main guy. Everything that was talked about at Nottingham Forest was talked through him, as it were. All interviews went to him, and quite rightly so, because he was the manager. Had he not been the manager of the football club, we would not have had that success. So he's entitled to take that. Would John Robertson have been a really good player at, let's say, Tottenham Hotspur, Manchester United? Probably. Was Peter Shilton one of their best goalkeepers ever? Yeah, absolutely. Was Viv Anderson a top-quality player? Yes. Tony Woodcock? No doubt at all about it. But he moulded all of that together. And as he often referred to us as a two-bit second division side <laughs> when he arrived, he didn't get immediate success with us because it took Peter Taylor arriving before a rejuvenated Clough brought it all together. But getting back to your point, Mike, I don't think it really does. But then again, sometimes, sometimes I think that the side that that we seem to have the Indian sign over, but were one of the best sides ever, were Liverpool. And I'm not so sure that Liverpool really get the credit for doing what they did, winning championships, playing, you know, 70 games a season, whatever, you know, playing, winning European Cups and things like this. Year. So I'm not so sure, you know, players like... Dalglish, Hansen, Suness, you know, those those type of players. So I'm not so sure about that there. So I don't think that we do ever think that uh, a provincial side like Nottingham Forest will end up winning two European Cups again. No, I don't think that'll happen. Because, mm. you know, the football world has, has changed fundamentally. You know, of course. Even Leicester, a club that you obviously mm. know well, did win the, the Premier League. When you look at this season's European Cup, I, I still call it the European Cup. Yeah, I know it's, do you, you know, do you? Yeah, 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 rather than yeah. Champions League. We're entering now the knockout phases. Mm -hmm. When you look around, who are the potential winners and who do you think will win it? Oh, gosh. I, uh, who do you think? Well, at some stage or another, you feel that Manchester City must go very, very close. They've had a few distractions this year. They're not leading the league at this minute. Their nearest rivals in the last number of years, Liverpool, are, are behind, so it's kind of topsy-turvy. World Cup being played in... in um, 
December, for most of December. I think all of those things have combined, you know, to, to have an effect. And Napoli, probably the most attacking Italian side now we've seen in years and years. It's really hard to say, really, really hard to say. In a knockout competition, the number of times that you feel as if Manchester City must have been nearly there. Remember a couple of years ago, they had a goal disallowed for VAR against Tottenham Hotspur. So little decisions like that. I honestly, if you're asking the question, I genuinely think that it's actually wide open. But you do feel that Manchester City, it must be their time soon. Yeah, because when you you look at the disparity in financial resources mm. above everything else, you know, we've seen it with Chelsea, for instance, mm. you know, who are still remaining in the competition, of course. With your management head on, Put yourself, if you can, in Graham Potter's position mm -hmm. because everything is going on around him, mm -hmm. yet he still has to produce that team. How difficult a job do you think he's got? Oh, exceptionally difficult, of course. I think that uh, that from the outset, it's getting back into that point that you asked the way back at the beginning of the of our talk. Do you kind of have to be in it to understand it? And I think that um, what it is, is, first of all, he will have come from Brighton arrived at the football club at Chelsea, expectation through the roof, as is expected to be at Chelsea. He started off nicely, and that was good, and that gives you a little bit of comfort and a little bit of time, you feel. But it's every single game. It's every game. You can't go three or four matches and do think you're doing really well and then let it... You don't have any respite. It's just continuous. So he has a lot of players to deal with at the football club trying to pick your best side, trying to get all of these things, Mike, like, just almost immediately. Sometimes that takes time. I'll get back to what I've just said. Brian Clough, even with a, a club like us, will call ourselves a two-bit club, as he mentioned, You know, taking 18 months before he's really got the thing going and he got a, a lot of help from Peter Taylor arriving. So would, for instance... Even in the last eight or nine years, let's say Mourinho comes over into Chelsea, does brilliantly, signs Drogba, get a number of players, but other teams are improving now. I think at that stage, I think he was only he was only contesting against Manchester United and perhaps maybe slightly maybe Arsenal. But overall, everything's hitting Graham at this moment. Everything's on top. You know, you'll have the owners asking, "What? Well, why have you not won that game?" For a start, you'll have the fans up in arms, you know, because we're not contesting. We should be in there. We should certainly be in the top four. We should be actually even winning this league with the players that we have. So all of those things, and you, you can, for all the money that Chelsea are throwing at it, you can only, you're only putting 11 players on at any one time. And he's still feeling his way. That's the whole point about it. He's still feeling his way. He's still feeling, wanting, he knows what the club's about. Yes, absolutely. He knew that from afar. But now he's in it, and it's one of those that uh, that you feel, well, where do I step to next? The most important thing, let's put it this way, the one thing that will calm everything is winning winning football matches. And if you can go, if you could pick it up and win four or five in the trot, it might give you, I don't think it does give you that much respite, but it might give you just a little bit of thinking time. Mm. Yeah, we both know that, that football is fuelled by conventional wisdom, even though that conventional wisdom is not usually that wise. Mm -hmm. um, someone you know well, Roy Keane, obviously was your assistant. Mm -hmm. Go back to our conversation about people that I thought would be managers. Mm -hmm. Now, I always thought that he was a manager. I thought there's a little ed edge to sort of a Fergie edge to him. Mm -hmm. Maybe he needed time to mature in terms of his personality. Mm -hmm. As he now does conventional wisdom 
say now that Roy Keane, OK, he's great in the TV studio, but he's not really a manager. Now, does that sell him short? Well, personally, I do. But, I mean, I, I don't pretend to know Roy that well. We, we did work together at international level. We weren't seeing each other that often. Uh, maybe that was a good thing. Um, <laughs> but overall, yes, he definitely has managerial material. There's no question about that. He proved himself up at Sunderland. He picked the side up, got promotion and did exceptionally well there. He left Sunderland, then went down to Ipswich. It might not have gone all that brilliantly, but sometimes that can happen. He's had a number of opportunities to get back in again. I thought, I was actually hoping that he would take Sunderland again because last season I thought, well, the worst he could do at the time that Sunderland were interested in taking him was, well, he could get into the playoffs. They might not win the playoffs, but, you know, they might have a chance. As it turns out, they did win the playoffs and, and went into the championship. So I was hoping he would take that there because the fans would have wanted it at the time. I think he would have been ready. And from my dealings with him and from my conversations with him, I think he's learned a great deal, you know, in management. Sometimes you can learn a lot by not being in it as much as anything else. But overall, yeah, I did think that. But I suppose eventually you'd have to ask him... I keep saying to him, there's no such thing as the right job. You have to pick up a job and you have to make it right. But, yeah, I, th I think this idea, this conventional thinking that you have, that he might not be a manager anymore, I do think that that's missing the point. Mm. What about yourself? Long career stretching mm. back to Grantham Town. Do you want to get back in still? Well, you, you asked me a question at, at the very beginning, do I miss the game? I think I'll always miss the game if you're not actually involved in some aspect. I think that uh, getting back to this conventional thinking, I think that you have to, do you put age as something? Do you feel that experience, does that count at all? I wonder about well, all of those particular things, yeah. It was interesting, well, you know, we, we had uh, Jürgen Klopp in mm -hmm. a couple of weeks ago and Jürgen said, he made, he made the reference to, to Roy Hodgson managing at 74 and he's saying, what's he doing in football at 74? At mm -hmm. 74, I'm going to have a grandchild bouncing on my knee, you know? Well, I, I, yeah, but that's everyone to their own. If that's Jurgen Klopp's thinking, that's fine. Strangely enough, I'll tell you this now. <clears throat> I'll make a prediction. In seven or eight years' time, and Jurgen Klopp, who knows what what might happen with him, and let, just let's say he's out of football for about a year and a half, and he is bouncing some grandchild up and down or something like this here, and you come in and interview him, you'll say, "Do you miss the game, Jurgen?" He'll say, "Absolutely, you'll miss the game." Mm. And you do. I, th I. I will always miss the game. You know, there will be the last breath. I think I'll be shouting up, you know, what was the final score there? <laughs> OK, final question, if I could. And it, and it has to relate to Brian Clough in quite a sobering way in many ways. Essentially, at the end, the game and, and perhaps life itself had swallowed him up. Mm -hmm. Is that a warning to other football managers and aspiring managers? Well, let me put it this way. I don't think, I don't know for certain, you'd have to ask Brian Clough's family about this, but I don't think Brian Clough would have changed anything at all. I think that for the success he had at Derby County and the success he had at Nottingham Forest, and I'm quite sure had he become the England manager, he would have got success there as well because he was just a brilliant, brilliant manager. I don't think, if you ask him, if he came back onto this earth again, I don't think he would change too many things. I'll tell you where I think he would. I think he would have repaired his relationship with Peter Taylor. Mm. Well, I'd love to speak to you all day, Martin, yeah. but I'm afraid uh, time has beaten us. But thanks yeah. very much for that. Oh, time. it's a pleasure, Michael. Thank you very much, and thank you for 
having me around here. Cheers, man. Thank you. Thank you. Interesting insight there, Migs, into Roy Keane, I thought. Do you still feel that he's got a future in management? It was interesting. I mean, what, what was also just as fascinating was that O'Neill's insistence that he's actually, he doesn't know Roy that well, <laughs> given the amount of they spend they spend together. I must say, I'd be intrigued to see how Keane would do, because even, it's not that, it's obviously not that long since he was an assistant. It's not even that long since he was actually a head coach in his own right. Well, it's about a decade. But, the game has moved on so much then in terms of even tactically. I know if you think about it, in, in 2016, when, when Mourinho was having his first kind of big um, calamitous season at Chelsea, there was already this big debate about how how coaches deal with the millennial generation of players. And given the way Keane talks about how maybe squad chemistry, shall we put it, when, he, when, he's, when he's on TV... And read your comments of, I'd be throwing punches in dressing rooms. <laughs> uh, I, 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 do, I do wonder how that would translate to a, to, to a modern 2023 dressing room. Before you even get to because the, the bigger questions of kind of tactical evolution and the rest of it. But then he's got an unmistakable charisma and obviously kind of <laughs> has this inherent insight about football. And that those two those two things are still quite powerful. And I think it is often a little bit. I I think O'Neill was right in pointing it out. Keane's very first season at Sunderland was incredible, especially given where that club were and like they they were like they got relegated from the Premier League. It looked like they could plummet down the divisions. Then of course he didn't just get them up, but he kept them up, which isn't always easy. And and that's been a, a bit overlooked in kind of in, in his legacy. So I think rather than saying he's he's finished or still got a future, I'd be. I'm really just fascinated to see how he do in his next job. Yeah, when we talk about managing millennials, Dom, could you imagine someone with Brian Clough's personality in the modern game? It'd be hilarious. <laughs> it would be brilliant. It would be an amazing watch. I mean, imagine what he would be saying about the City situation or even the Chelsea spending situation now. I mean, it would just be fascinating. And, and yeah, I mean, I look, I... I loved those recollections. I mean, even your your recollections, Mike, of, yeah, of introducing yeah. yourself to to Cluffy. I remember, <laughs> I remember doing that with Sir Alex Ferguson the first time I went to Carrington as a young journalist, and it is a terrifying walk is, that and the, the offer of the hand and please take the hand, please accept it, please. And it's hmm. just 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 brilliant. Um, I, I I I only remember the really the tail end of of Clough, maybe sort of the, the the League Cup successes that Forrest enjoyed rather than the European Cup successes that, that Forrest enjoyed. But he's still a character that absolutely fascinates me and will always have the mystique. Um, not, I mean, God, his punditry even. Oh, just go back on YouTube and look at some of those, yeah. some of those clips when it, the honesty which he, he he went about things. I mean, we talk about Keane, but but Clough was in a different different level. I mean, with with some of his assessments of what you know what he was watching out on the pitch, he was just a just a, an amazing, amazing character. Mm. What's your assessment, Migs, of, of of Martin's managerial career? Is Done the gamut, isn't it, from Grantham Town upwards? Yeah, yeah, we're talking about one of the most varied careers in that sense. Maybe the, the one thing missing from it was probably he he never got a job at a at a huge club in in the modern game, in in, in the sense that that sort of club that can compete for titles 
in the last decade and was always maybe just on the brink of it. I mean, there were, there were periods when he was talked about maybe succeeding Alex Ferguson at one point. He was considered for the England job at one stage. But, I mean, the, that real core of his career was defined by someone who took maybe clubs of a kind of a financial or, or size-wise in that kind of second or third tier and really getting to, or in the case of Leicester, maybe even fourth tier, and really getting to play above themselves. He, he, even with Ireland, which is probably, supposed suppose, at the point where maybe kind of his, his, the trajectory of his career was on that other side, he, he still got Ireland to, to, to qualify for one of the country's very rare international tournaments. Just by virtue of that, is, is a huge success there. And, and had some absolutely massive wins of the type that Ireland went really against Germany, against, against Italy, leading against France in that last 16 game in Euro 2016. I think maybe managers of that generation, they're often put into that framework now where they'd be kind of like, the, the type of football is, it would be firefighting at best. But I think O'Neill was usually distinctive for well over a decade in the way he put up teams, how well organised they were. And when you're playing a Martin O'Neill team, you were going to have a real game. And then obviously his Celtic team, which is probably O'Neill's best, I would say, throughout his career, we were at the point where Celtic, already at a stage in football history with Scottish football, it was beginning to feel the financial power of the rest of the game. But he made them one of the, I think, one of the most respected sides in Europe, especially at home, when you had Juventus going to Celtic Park, being given huge games, when you had that Europa League run. I mean, it really came down to the fine margins. Maybe Jose Mourinho's career wouldn't have quite got the launch that it did. It's so narrowly beaten Celtic in that 2003 final. And I'd say that was the best representation of O'Neill football. Yeah. One thing that, that struck me during our conversation, Don, was that someone of his experience would be perfect for a younger manager. You know, that sort of grey beard effect that we see. Someone perhaps like Nathan Jones at Southampton. You know, there's a classic case of someone talking himself out of a job, isn't it? Yeah, it does feel that way, to be honest. I think there, there must have been some shock and surprise amongst that Southampton ownership uh, on the back of that, the comments on the after the, the 3-0 loss at, at Brentford. <laughs> the, the, the issue that Nathan, they've got with Nathan Jones is that Nathan Jones clearly believes very much in his own ability to, and, and, and actually his record at Luton Town in two spells, not so much at Stoke, but Luton Town twice, suggests he has got something. And if he gets his team playing his way, then they are a handful at that level. But he's untested at the Premier League level. And I'm not sure that that, that what he was saying post-match lends itself to bringing in a, what do you say, the greybeard, the the older statesman who's going to offer advice. Because it didn't sound like a man who was really keen to take on more advice. He's sort of implying that he'd been given rather a lot of advice stroke instruction from from elsewhere in the club already. So it it just feels an unlikely and... Rather awkward marriage that that one at the moment, Jones and and, and Southampton, and and it results will have to turn pretty quickly, and there have there have been precious few. I mean, the occasional glimpse of, of of decent things in the in the cup competitions in particular, and the win at Everton, but it, it might be it, it feels as if it's going one way. Let's put it like that. Yeah. So as a final point, Migs, you know, Leeds have made their move in you know, getting rid of Jesse Marsh. Do you expect other sackings before long? Well, it's it, it's off of that kind of knock-on effect. It, it, this, and this is what happened last season. Actually, certainly in terms of results from the new managers, where one of the clubs, and I think we are talking about basically almost 
a, a relegation scrap that could go up to 10 clubs. But one of those clubs gets a new manager or gets a run. Then one, then another who has suddenly been sucked down are forced to respond. And even you could you could even say that the, the marsh sacking itself, it, it was obviously in the slipstream of Everton bringing in Deich. Because suddenly does that need to do something because the dynamic has changed. So yeah, I, I definitely think that's the case. A friend of mine has a telling phrase. He says that if he didn't love football, he'd hate it. Watching the fallout from the Manchester City case, I understand what he means. I love the intensity of the Premier League, but football is increasingly about vast amounts of money, unbridled greed and excessive political ambition. More and more, I'm being drawn to the simpler pleasures of lower league and non-league football. I suspect I'm not alone, and that makes me feel sad. I'm uplifted, of course, by the insight of Miguel and Dom, thanks to them and to Martin O'Neill. Maybe they were the good old days after all.